Hey, I'm Steve Folland. Thanks for listening. This episode is supported by the podcast host who have launched their new community, Fan Fission, a place for you to learn about podcasting and to get support to help you grow the one you have. Find out all the details at beingfreelance.com. Right now, though, let's find out what it's like being freelance for data visualization specialist Andy Kirk. One of the biggest things I've learned over the time as a freelancer is the value of value. It's the value of knowing when to pay somebody else to do something because you would spend longer and probably do a worse job and probably a more expensive job than actually saying someone who's, who's got that skill and got that capability to say, you know, okay, I'll bring you in, I'll pay for you to do this because it makes sense. I've quickly got better at realising my own limits and my own constraints and actually embracing those and say, right, this is something I could do but not very well, let's get someone else. You know, I'm, I'm still perhaps someone who struggles to recognise my own value to others in some respects. Perhaps I'm, I might play that down sometimes, thinking, I can't charge people this much because how on earth can I say I'm worth that much to that person? But it is an, an evolving art, I guess, but you really only get there through experience rather than being taught it or learning from others. You only find your own price point through trying it out. Yeah, data visualization specialist. That's a that's a mouthful, isn't it? We will find out uh, what Andy is up to in a moment. Uh, let me just remind you, Being Freelance is at beingfreelance.com where you'll find all of the guests as we head towards 80. 80? Uh, go take a look, beingfreelance.com. Also, join us on Twitter at being freelance hit subscribe on this podcast so that you don't miss episodes in the future and of course if you know somebody who is a freelancer or thinking about becoming freelance maybe they do it on the side at the moment or they're talking to you about it share this with them do us a favor do them a favor as well that would be nice anyway let's move on let's find out what it's like being freelance for andy so uh, let's talk to him a freelance data visualization specialist andy kirk hey andy steve how are you I am good. Um, thanks for this. Uh, no, my pleasure. Well, let's find out how you got started being freelance and in a, in a brief snapshot as well, what on earth a data visualisation specialist <laughs> is for those who don't know. Yeah, I'll give that a go. I was the art and maths kid at school, so I always enjoyed doing, doing both those pursuits and I went down the route of kind of data and statistics. And then my career took me into different large organisations like Balfour Beatty, engineering, like the Cooperative Insurance Society, and then West Shortshire Police, where I spent about five or six years being a data analyst and kind of carved out a, a certain niche, I suppose, as, you know, as someone who made sense of data, who could communicate and present data. When I w- then moved on to the University of Leeds as an information manager, again, another big organisation, and I had the chance to do a master's degree for staff. So the idea was you could do a two-year part-time research master's degree without having to drop out of your career. I thought, perfect. And about three days before I submitted my proposal, I came across this subject called data visualization by chance on the web. I found this site and thought, wow, this is a thing. This whole business <laughs> of doing charts and graphics has a name for it and it has a science behind it. And it was like this you know, genuine eureka light bulb moment of Wow, this is something I really could could really kind of get into. So I, you know, I carved out the master's proposal to to base it around that subject. But already at that point, I was thinking, now this could be something I could move into. And I've always been looking for something that I could go into as a freelance. I've always wanted that had that urge to be 
my own boss and to be my own kind of frontline function. But this was the first time I'd found something really that felt like it could be could be something interesting. Anyway, long story short, I did the two-year masters, totally kind of unlocked the passion for the subject, and thought, well, how do I continue learning and discovering this subject? And so I decided to do a blog. So I launched my website back in 2010, I think it was January 2010, just to kind of write about things, about charts and graphics that I see in the wild, and by writing about it publicly, you're kind of forced to, I guess, to establish a certain conviction about what you believe in and what you think is right and wrong and the practices that underlie it. So, you know, for the first six months, I guess my mum and dad might have come along to to read the, the articles <laughs> and probably nobody else. But then, um, you know, a few things happened. I got, I got mentioned in various posts and you just start to build up this, this I guess, this footfall. Um, and then out of the blue, Walmart, of all people, came along and said, can you, you know, do you offer any services? And I thought, yes, <laughs> yes, of course I do. Um, of course I didn't, but I, you know, <laughs> I had a, you know, I had a daytime full-time job, but this was very much a kind of part-time, own-time pursuit. But I thought, yeah, let's carve out a vehicle of some sort to do this formally. Did a little project for them. It wasn't the biggest project, but having them as a, as a kind of first client yeah. just felt like there was a, there was a, there was a momentum there to build off. And again, Quite a long story short, a few more opportunities emerged. I got to the critical point of there was no more spare time, evening, weekend capacity to do to do this kind of secondary pursuit. So I took the plunge, said to my boss, look, can I explore going part-time initially to see if there's something in this freelance world? And he was very, very supportive. You know, can't thank him enough retrospectively about giving me the chance to do that. And pretty much within a week it was kind of clear that the more daytime capacity I spent on doing this thing, the more opportunities were emerging. And basically six months later, after having really to serve out finishing my work, as it were, at the university, I uh, I became full-time freelance. So that's uh, five years ago. Awesome. So again, it's your it's your blog and your sharing of of like absolutely your thought processes, which mm. kind of kickstarted this. Yeah, I, I mean, I see that as my shop window. In a sense, it's it's not even so much about having a portfolio that's visible. Um, in fact, that's one of my frustrations because a lot of my work I have to keep kind of hidden because it's for corporates and uh, the. You know, they don't like sharing stuff that's for internal audiences. But anyway, you know, my, I guess my sales pitch is how I write and discuss and talk about the project and how I talk about my ideas and I guess in part the knowledge that I've developed over these years. And, you know, my my largest offering is knowledge-based perhaps rather than necessarily, necessarily anything that's creative or tangible in a visible sense. So, yeah, the, the blog, you know, has been a, a wonderful route to kind of get in established in this field and you know the footfall that comes from the visitors therefore gives me a chance to promote the the various things like training courses like research work like consultancy work that I do so it's you know it's a very fortunate model that I've I guess stumbled across but you know seems to be working so far it's less of a shop window and more of an MRI scan it's like yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, it's looking <laughs> because you can't, as you say, you can't really show the work half the time, but you can show your thinking and yeah. uh, of of other things. So that's um, it. and people really get to know you. So when when Walmart got in touch, like, mm. how were you promoting your blog 
at that point? Like, how did, other than your parents, how did anybody find you? <laughs> Simply by searching. Um, I've, I've never advertised, actually. I mean, I advertise on my own site, but I guess I'm allowed to do that. But I don't advertise anywhere else. It's, it's simply through just getting in at the right time and by keeping a certain frequency, I wouldn't say prolific frequency, but certainly kind of two or three times a week blog posting cycle, you know, you, you get the right terms into Google, you get the right search connections, and eventually people will find me pretty much high up on the list when they're looking mm. for data visualization support or chart design support or whatever combination of words they, they kind of use. How have you managed to stay consistent with your blogging, given how important it is? Uh, I think you said two to three times a week. Yeah. Um, how, how have you managed to keep that up, especially once you become busy? I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> um, I, I mean, what I've found, I think, of the last maybe two or three years is a, a certain tactic whereby I'll try and find a, a recurring kind of a recurring series where, so for example, let me get like one example to kind of make this a bit more concrete. One of the things that I do at the moment is a post called the little of data visualization design. And it's about looking at those minutiae design choices that really do make a big difference, but you know, could be down to the smallest choice of a, pixel included or otherwise or a, a certain colour on a very small asset but by having that structure of a, of a of a kind of theme of post ideas I've now got the lens when I look at other works to immediately lock onto these things so it gives me a nice framework with it, within, within which to be quite creative and quite prolific about the same theme but on different applications each time so I think that's one of the things that I've found easiest the the last two or three years, um, but also because I've, you know, along the way I've also written two books. I can also use the content of those books as, you know, as, as content to kind of recycle in small excerpts or snippets on the site. So I think I think it's something that's again become somewhat second nature. But I think there's a there's a blend of repeated series posts, but also kind of one-off um, comments about, you know, like recently there was a lot of focus about the graphics used in the US election. So that's a, an event on which you can quite easily draw some comments. When did you write your first book? I think it's four years ago. That was an interesting experience. I mean, when someone writes to you and says, uh, would you like to write a book? And you think, well, this may never, ever happen again. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and, and, and looking back, you know, I would, never, I would never go back on the acceptance of that uh, inquiry. But... The, the first book was a frustrating endeavour because it was, um, well, first and foremost, it was printed in black and white. So the colour chapter is an odd, curious read for people who've got the print book. I mean, it's primarily an e-book, but the, the, it was print as well. So the, the experience with the publishers wasn't the best, and it was also released on the 26th of December which is a little bit of a, a black hole in terms of uh, getting the, uh, the, you know, even with, you know, people receiving Amazon vouchers for Christmas, this isn't the book that they're all, you know, diving onto the web to find. So, it, you know, I'm glad I did it because it gave me so much experience of the writing process and, uh, and, and also, you know, I guess prepared me for the, the discussions that you need to have up front about, you know, how will this be printed and when will it be due? But it did set me up for the second book, which I had the chance to, to work on... Um, 
over the last couple of years for Sage Publishers. So that was in full glorious Technicolor and um, published in uh, in the summer, which was a you know a better market position. So you know again that the second book was the book I always wanted to write. I had to do the first book, which was okay. Don't get me wrong, three stars. <laughs> but the um, you know the second book was certainly the one that I'm uh, I'm, I'm most proud about. After you wrote those books, did you like? How did you use them? Because I, I mean, I've heard them described as like the the ultimate business card or whatever. Like, what was your experience? Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly what it is. In, in a sense, it's. Um, I mean, it's not a money maker by any means. I mean, but the, you know, the book acts as two things. It's the visible kind of credentials builder, and it's something you can hold up in front of people. Say yes. I've written that, and and certainly in this field, you kind of have to write books because everyone else is doing so. <laughs> if if you don't, you, you know, it's almost kind of a sense of being left behind, I, I guess. But but secondly, in doing that, you're you're going through a process of research and personal development because again, you're fine tuning your approach to thinking and rationalising all the critical thinking about this subject and how you would then impart that to others, which is the job I'm doing when I'm doing training courses and training courses are probably the most you know important revenue builder for me on that front so I can translate the work I've done in writing the book back into the materials that I then deliver in my training courses and the teaching that I do at, um, for example at Imperial College you know so it, it kind of all kind of leads back it's, it's all part of the same process it's just it's something that does take a hell of a lot of time it does take a lot of energy and motivation because you're not you know you're not getting paid at that time to write the book so it does require a certain discipline I think but it's certainly worth it I, I would never ever undo what I've done mm. let's rewind ever so slightly then to the point when Walmart get in touch and mm. you didn't actually have any services <laughs> yeah so how have you evolved like services wise over the years yeah, well, you know, I mean, I, I was certainly thinking about this, so that it wasn't so much that I, you know, I didn't necessarily have the, the, the company vehicle at that point, although I very quickly did, to make it all legit. And, I mean, wow, <laughs> the, the amount of paperwork and the amount of research you have to do to get things up, and then the amount of paperwork that Walmart requests of you, you know, DNA scans and all sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Seriously? No, no, no. But, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it, but it, it felt like that at various yeah, points. Yeah, I um, put it past. <laughs> a little, you know, send us a little sample of your blood, please. But um, the, you know, the, my services at that point, I was expecting, and that was the thing that I did for Walmart was along the lines of consultancy. So we've got this challenge. Here's perhaps some data that we're working with, or here's some work that we've done. You know, what do you think? What can we do differently? What can we do better? And, and that's still very much part and parcel of my, my core offering. It is viable because you don't have to be there. You don't have to travel all the way to America. You don't have to travel all the way to any client really to do this. Unless you need to. And, you know, there are occasions whereby you have to go on site and do some, you know, little kind of focus groups, a little bit of workshopping. But it's a nice, flexible model to, to do that work. But, you know, I knew at that point I was also likely to be exploring doing uh, training workshops because I knew that I had never benefited from this training, either at school all the way through to to working. Um, I knew that there were very few others offering at that point. This is, you know, 2010. So, I, you know, once again, I, in a sense, I, I gambled by spending a lot of time 
working up materials to deliver training courses and again working up that offering to say you know tell me where you want me to come to and if there's enough people I'll put on an event in that location and then hope that people will translate their interest into paid bookings so that kind of pair of offerings the training courses and the consultancy was the I guess the early days and then that's evolved as well to doing I guess broader design work so rather than helping organizations do it I kind of do it for them or I do it with collaborators for them I've done research work so I also get involved in research projects at universities as a kind of guest uh, researcher or kind of external consultant so alongside the book and alongside speaking it's quite it's probably evolved into quite a broad offering well let's say a broad as offering as you can perhaps in this space and I think that that kind of diversification to a certain degree within the the bubble of a specialism I think's been been quite important not just to to spread the the marketplace but to to also I guess create different things for me to get involved in and I'm probably the sort of person who gets bored quite easily and so by doing different things it does keep my my interests by having different things to to pursue you mentioned collaborating with others yeah do you ever outsource you know like hire people to work with you or is it a different... yeah one of the key things in this domain I guess is that there are very few people who have all the skills that you need to be the the perfect all-rounder because we are talking about capabilities from you know very technical tool but also programming based sensibilities um, design instincts but then the rigor of data statistics almost like the journalistic instinct and then you know project management skills so that there's a there's a real range of different attributes and I'm okay with certain tools and applications very I'm very skilled with but there are many others that are out there that I'm okay with but not good enough to make it worth my time to do a relative relatively inefficient or ineffective job so you know outsourcing to 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 find skills people you know have got web skills people have got design skills that maybe you know more pure and stronger than my own is important and I think one of the biggest things I've learned over the the time as a freelancer is the value of value it's the value of knowing when to pay somebody else to do something because you would spend longer and probably do a worse job <laughs> and probably a more expensive job than actually saying someone who's who's got that skill and got that capability to say you know okay I'll bring you in I'll pay for you to do this because it makes sense to to kind of make that judgment call and I think that's that's really something I've 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 quickly got better at over the last few years realizing my own limits and my own constraints and and actually embracing those and saying right this is something I could do but not very well let's get someone else Okay, I tell you what, let's just pause there. Let me remind you that this episode is supported by Fan Fission, the new podcast community from the podcast host. It's a way for you to learn. They've got in-depth courses on learning how to podcast, but also developing the one you have. So whatever stage you're at, they've got stuff for you, a range of courses and strategies, you know, from getting your equipment set up to monetizing, whatever it might be. Uh, they also have live classes and workshops that they're doing with fans. And fishing and mastermind groups like a, they have a monthly catch up with the whole community uh, live Q&A that sort of thing and the word community is really key for fan fishing and what they're doing so the idea is that you're learning alongside other people and you support one another you 
guide each other, you motivate each other, you uh, help each other along the way. So whether you're growing a podcast for your business, which I know lots of our guests have done, or maybe for a side project, for a passion uh, that you're into, like Colin, for example, who runs the podcast host. Sure, he does a podcast about podcasting, but he also does one about mountain biking. So whatever it might be that you want to get into, check them out. Fan Fission is what they're called uh, from the podcast host. There's a link at beingfreelance.com. Right. But back to you, Andy. As you were developing all of these different services, how did you manage like figuring out your pricing? Because it's... <laughs> I haven't got <laughs> a clue. <laughs> still, still not. In fact, this morning I was sat there thinking, do I charge this or do I charge that? And and why? And that, you know, I, I've, I've got, obviously, I'm not just making it up every single time. I have got, I've done a bit of research in terms of what, let's say, competitors or similar enough competitors are doing. Um, but it is very difficult. And, you know, I'm, I'm still perhaps someone who struggles to recognise my own value to others in some respects. Perhaps I'm, I might play that down sometimes, thinking, I can't charge people this much because how on earth can I say I'm worth that much to that person? But, you know, it's again, it's the value of value. And to them, yes, it may be of value. Mm. But it's something that I guess you'd... I, I've, I've always found it's worthwhile starting, perhaps not low, but certainly, let's say, lower than the median or lower than the average because it's easier to raise prices than it is, I think, to, to re- reduce prices. And I guess by steadily just increasing prices, you find the pushback point. You find the point at which more people are perhaps saying no than they are saying yes. Um, but with that, there's also a sense of sometimes, you know, I don't want to charge that type of organisation that amount because of the nature of their work or they, you know, the, the, it, it's not about saying, okay, Charities and 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 non-profits are are the good guys, and so I always charge them the cheapest. And then the the corporates, they're the evil people. I will charge them the most and subsidise the others. But you know, sometimes you do think actually, you know, this is a very noble endeavour. So I might just reduce prices because I think you could do some very very important work if if you if I can help you with this thing. So it it, it is an, an evolving art, I guess, but. It's something that you you really only get there through uh, through experience rather than being taught it or learning from others. It's you only find your own price point through through trying it out. Mm. How have you found coping with the you know the get even the getting paid side of it? Because I don't I mean I don't know how long your projects might go on for or mm. how much work and hours you might need to put in to, to an event before you even go there when you've got hotels or flights or whatever. You know, how have you coped with that side of it? Yeah, so in a sense I've do two different strands of payments. So the more kind of frequent but smaller payments come from delegates booking onto my training workshops. These are public events. So it's not about a single client, it's about people saying, "Oh, that looks interesting." I'll book on that. So that's smaller amounts, but people pay up front in on in the same idea that you pay up front to to go to uh, you know a concert, to book a flight. You know you you pay up front because there's a finite space for you to to occupy. So on that on that front, I you know I, I get the money up front largely for for the the expenditure of booking a venue, for the the cost of travelling, whatever. On the more kind of um, client side of things, it, it's pay generally speaking it's pay after after delivery 
and so there's you know there's a certain sense of good faith on both sides. And, you know, I, I do have a very low level contract that you know of agreement, so that there's a certain security that comes from that. But again, it's it is a stressful thing. You know, I've been I've only had I've probably only had two clients that I've had to kind of blacklist, as it were, who were you know terrible to work with in on on the account side, and you know I think. One of them didn't pay me for 13 months, and you know that's that's far longer than it should, of course, ever be. But in a sense, because they're one-offs, you have to take each one on its own merits. And because the others I've worked with are generally very, very good, it doesn't create the pressure point of, let's say, you know, cash flow issues. But it's still just one of those things of anxiety. At any point in time, there is unpaid invoices sat there. And, and it's not that I don't think they'll pay. It's just that anxiety of it being unpaid that I think is always at the back of your mind. So you're always, you don't want to be that pushy client saying, have you paid me yet? Have you paid me yet? But you still want to kind of be professional on top of things. So it it is something that, I, you know, I, I, I do find is just a, a background anxiety rather than something that's a, you know, a crippling cash flow pressure issue. But you know, I just don't know why clients can't pay quicker, honestly. You know, there's there's no reason why these huge organisations with big departments cannot pay within, you know, thirty days, shall we say. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I've I've we've we've had guests on here before and it always where it seems to be like the biggest organisations, like the real yeah. multinational probably bigger than a country kind of Yeah uh, organisations that seem to hold things up and and their accounts departments are so big that it's you know it's not like you're just always emailing tracy yeah <laughs> if That's you're it. working with a smaller business and actually speaking of tracy um <laughs> I think what's she done now what's she done now tracy come on i think the important thing is always to find two contact names um, oh you know, good tip I, i'm often dealing with you know with a a client um contact who said you know, Andy, can we bring you on, on, on site to do an event? Or, you know, can you take a look at this data and, you know, come up with some ideas? But if that person moves on, or if that person goes off sick, and, you know, you, you just don't have any other people to contact. So I always find a contact person from the client side who, who you're dealing with, but also as quickly as possible, a contact name or address for the kind of AP side is, is, is important. Mm, very good tip. Uh, now... Uh, where are you based, by the way? Cause you, I'm based you in see, Leeds. Right, because you're travelling a lot. So, so, so what? You work from home, and then yes, yeah, yeah. So my commute is either, you know, twenty steps <laughs> upstairs, or it's um, it's everywhere else. Um, and it's you know, it's it's a really nice blend. I'm still not tired of travelling. Um, I've been doing it for five years, and I've I don't know, I've I've done hundreds of flights over that time and um you know I'm 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 very fortunate to travel to some very very cool places in the world and you know it's such a terrific op- you know opportunity that I never ever quite get over that you know I'm able to for example last few weeks I've been in Abu Dhabi and Barcelona and uh Holland and London and and Milton Keynes as well um <laughs> And you know, it's it's something that I you know I really treasure the chance to to get around. It it can be tiring, but it's uh, it's certainly worth the the effort because you you get to visit these places and, and meet new people and and actually find that you know everyone's 
facing the same challenges. Everyone's trying to get over the same bump in terms of this huge deluge of data they're dealing with, but they just need a bit more help. So it, it does make it quite a, um, a portable endeavour, shall we say. And I suppose each of those trips just brings more awareness to, to who you are. Yeah, it, it does. And, and going back to the idea of, you know, how how do I show my work? Well, I suppose in a sense, um, whether it's interesting for people or not, part of my, I guess, my social media output is to kind of almost narrate the travels and to n- narrate the the clients and the, these trips because it, it you know it, it makes it a visible thing that I'm doing even if it's not the the actual consequence of that work that I'm doing you know you know you know social media especially twitter for 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 this subject in particular twitter is a very a very visible and active community so you know just just drop, dropping a few tweets a few instagram photographs does again just add that extra layer of of visibility to the stuff I'm doing yeah, I like that. So you're on social. You're not just sharing your blog posts. You're sharing yeah. like your your literal journey that's <laughs> as right. you're going around. Yeah, that's right. And mm. you know, and along the way, you're building a sense of uh, busyness and of the diversity. And also by showing the places that you're travelling to, potential clients in those regions realise that okay, well, this guy might be based in Yorkshire, but he's not. Just you know, just anchored there for forever. So it's something we can maybe bring him in to do something for us. Mm. Now I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me? Okay, so this was a this was a challenge, but I found I found three things. Let's see how you get on with these, Steve. So two of these are from when I was a kid, and one is from more recent times. Number one, when I was a kid in the eighties. I was on a tour of the House of Commons with my parents, but also on the same tour was the then governor of Arkansas and his wife and daughter Chelsea, brackets, a.k.a. the Clintons. (laughs) Number two. Also as a kid, I was once pushed over to the ground by Sir Bobby Charlton. (laughs) Um, Number three... This is more as a grown-up. Um, I once recorded an angry consumer piece for BBC Watchdog programme, but it was ne- never actually aired because I got my facts wrong. Wow! Um, I'm so gutted that one of these isn't isn't true. So you visited the House of Commons, so and the Clintons were there before yeah. before you would have known. Like, before, before Bill they took were. office, this was yeah. the, in the late eighties, yeah. So is it only in hindsight that you've realised that they were there? Um, no, because when I was there, um, Chelsea, who was, I think, probably the same age as me, said, um, hi, I'm, I'm Chelsea. My dad's the governor of Arkansas. Uh-huh. Um, she didn't have a Yorkshire accent. That's just me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Avoiding any attempt to do an impression. I wish. <laughs> that would be brilliant if that's how she spoke. That's right, yeah. But um, um, yeah, so, you know, obviously looking wow. back. I now realise that he was also the, the president and yes. the uh, the nominee. But yeah, Bobby Charlton pushed you over. But uh, for, for for those listening around the world, Bobby Charlton is one of our here in England one of our most famous footballers because he actually won something, <laughs> unlike the rest of them. So Bobby Charlton pushed you over. Yes, playing it football was... or was it a Black Friday deal in ASDA? Like what was the? Yeah, we were f- we were fighting over this fourteen inch. Um... <laughs> 
LG <laughs> flat screen telly. No, listen, it, it was in the 80s and Bobby Charlton did these soccer schools. And I went along to a soccer school with my cousin. My cousin was a Man United fan. I'm a Liverpool fan. And when we went down the line and he met, met us all, and he said, who do you support, son? And I said, oh, Liverpool. He, he pushed me. I don't think he was intending to cause any harm. <laughs> but he did overly push me. I was caught off balance. And then, you know, timber went to the ground. And what was it? That, so Watchdog is a TV show over here where like they they put dodgy companies to rights basically yes. people so you filmed a piece what, what like just just as a normal person as a normal person this was so Fu- again furious this was about my, your washing machine or something this was no this was linked again to my being a liverpool fan um in the early 2000s liverpool were modifying their ticket selling process and basically it made it harder for people to um, to, to buy tickets. It also made it harder for you to buy tickets and sit next to the other people you might wish to go with. Also, I thought, but that was my basis of being angry, and I was invited down to do a piece for Watchdog outside Southport Football Club. And basically, yeah, my, my anger was the fact I couldn't book tickets to go with my wife, and that was the central piece of my outrage, and it was wrong. <laughs> I could... <laughs> I absolutely could book a ticket with my wife, so it, it never actually went to uh, to air. There were, there were other things as well, but I didn't I didn't focus on those. But okay, um, these are all excellently told. You're a very good liar. Thank you. But I don't believe the Clintons were at the House of Commons the same time as you. That's the lie. Ah, oh, you're absolutely right, Steve. Yes, God. What I am glad about is that means the Bobby Charlton story is absolutely true. Which is yes, true. I was pushed the ground by Bobby Charlton. <laughs> now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? I think it would be, so on the basis that my younger self was always looking out for something that they could do as a freelancer, I would say keep persevering, keep on the lookout, Keep working hard to find those opportunities, but don't just jump at the first thing that comes along. Because the first thing that came along for me would would now have me down as a very failed crep van owner. <laughs> um, so wait for the right passion, wait for the right moment, but, but also, again, don't jump into it. Spend time doing the kind of part time, um, sorry, the, the you know the the personal time, the evenings and weekends. Really wait till you've reached that point of, you know, there's just no more space to really kind of push yourself into this, and then and only then jump into it. But don't jump into something cold. You know, give yourself time to realise that this is the right thing to to go into. Mm, okay, we're pretty much out of time. Let me just point everyone in the direct because Andy isn't our first data visualizer per- person. No, no, oh. <laughs> sounds um, unique. But we have spoken to Stephanie Posovich. Oh uh, yes, Stephanie, in yeah. the past. So um, I'll put a link in the show notes to her episode as well. That was back in June 2015, so you can go back and uh, listen to what she was up to as well. Uh, which, I mean, as all of these things prove, a similar 
job title, but very different story as well. So mm. uh, interesting to hear Stephanie's uh, side of it as well. Andy, thanks so much. Check out beingfreelance.com, everything that Andy is up to with visualising data, find out everything he's up to. And of course, don't forget to hit subscribe both on our newsletter, but also on the episodes itself, wherever you might find us, like iTunes, for example, so that you don't miss any more. But Andy, thank you so much and all the best being freelance. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. My pleasure.